Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. Hey everyone, it's good to see you. Uh, for the couple of you who don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn, and we're glad that you're all here with us. Uh, tonight we're going to continue our series, United in Christ, which where we've been for the last six weeks in the letter to the book of, uh, or the letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, so in the book of Ephesians. And we're actually at our halfway point tonight, so that may really excite some of you because you're ready to get out of Ephesians, or this, this may be like, oh no, I can't believe we're already halfway through, it's gone so fast. Uh, hopefully it's encouraged you guys. It's been great for me. I've never really dove this deep into the uh, a letter to the Ephesians myself, and so it's been just really packed full of encouragement for me, and really as you look at, this was a circular letter, circular letter to churches, and so a church just like ours, and so it has been really encouraging. And what Paul's going to do for us this evening, he's going to provide a summary for everything that he has given us up to this point in the three chapters that we've already worked through. And so this section is more of a transitional section of the book, um, and so it's, it's similar to whenever you uh, look at like a TV series. So if you watch, I know I've mentioned the show Lost before, which I was a huge fan of Lost, and it would, you know, they would end, and you're like, oh no, I've got to go three or four months without this, and then, you know, previously on Lost is how it would enter, and it would show you all of the scenes from last season. So usually that first episode was kind of a waste, because it really didn't give you much more to the storyline, other than it refreshed you what had happened previously. And so it's kind of what Paul's going to do for us tonight, is he's going to say, here's where we've been in these first three chapters, which has really been about who we are in Christ, and then he's going to look forward to where we're going to be headed which is how to live that out. And so we really need both of those, but it's going to get really practical in the next three chapters. And so right here, smack dab in the middle, we have this transitional section, which is really on the power, um, prayer for power, uh, which is why we call the sermon tonight Empowered, uh, just because I'm not really praying for spiritual strength. In a sense, pray that we can live into everything that he's given us up to this point in this letter. And so the transitional episodes of a TV show, they really serve a great purpose. You know, they don't necessarily do much to, to go further into the plot line, but they help you remember those like nuance, details, things that you may have forgotten that in the end are actually really important, but you can easily just gloss over them. And so that's what he's going to do for us. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 14 through 21 of chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them there or open your app. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have blue Bibles on the table in the back, and that is our gift to you if you don't own a copy of Scripture. And so I want us to remember that this letter is written to the church at Ephesus, which we've talked about this at length in the first couple of weeks, but really they were in a very similar context where we found ourselves in the city of Portland. And so the, the church at Ephesus had found themselves at a place that it was really getting hard for them to believe the truth of the gospel and then to actually live out the truth of the gospel. And so that's where Paul says, you know what, I'm going to stop. I'm going to remind you guys of what I've already told you. And really, I'm going to remind you again and tell you again so that you can be encouraged to live this out in these truths and these reality. And so you, you get the sense that some of them have started to forget this truth. And maybe you found yourself there in your own life. Maybe you walk with the Lord for a number of years and you'd say, you know what, I know the, the gospel. I know the good news. And, and I went to Sunday school school as a kid, and I can cite all these things to you, but maybe you find yourself where you're not necessarily believing it. And so you kind of get that sense that some of the uh, Ephesians have found themselves at that place. Like, you know what? I know this stuff. I could write it down. I could pass the test, but I'm not actually living out its implications in my life. And so Paul jumps in for starting in verse 14, and he says, by saying this, 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So let's stop for a second. If you look, if you remember last week when we started chapter 3, Paul started with the exact same statement, for this reason, but then he quickly got sidetracked. We talked about last week how it looked like Paul maybe had some form of ADD in his thought, which is a lot of us. He starts this thing, and then he goes all the way a different direction. So he kind of picks that thought back up, says, for this reason, and, and what he's doing is he's starting to pray for the Ephesian believers to remember who they, whose they are, for endurance in the midst of their context and for strength to continue with following Jesus because he knows it's really challenging, really difficult. And so Paul starts out by kneeling on his knees. Now we read that, and if you've been around church at all, you hear like, oh, kneeling on your knees, like people do that, and I know that's sometimes a posture of prayer. Well, it's not a big deal. But if you look at the culture and the context at this time, that's actually a pretty significant thing that Paul would kneel on his knees because it wasn't customary for Jews to kneel in prayer. So the fact that he starts out saying, I kneel, in order to do this prayer, uh, which really just this indicates there's a deep humility and a deep emotion happening before God. So it's a, a posture that he's taking on. And I don't think we need to draw conclusions. You know, I could say, hey, there's a hard fashion rule. You must pray in this way. I don't think that's, that's wise for us to do um, most cases in Scripture. But I do think it's wise for us to consider the posture of kneeling and, and kind of draw out a few applications for us. Think about if you're kneeling in prayer... The first application is that you, you're, you are expressing gratitude when, when you're kneeling. Think about if someone just came and paid off all your debt. Maybe you have student loans. You know, I know a friend of mine who's in mid-40s, and he's still paying student loans, and he only went to school for two years. He never graduated. So he's got 20-plus you know, years of paying these loans. Unless someone came to him and just said, I'm paying off your car and your student loans, like, he would probably kneel and just fall in gratitude. Like, wow, this is amazing. So that's what Paul's doing here. He's also kneeling, as, which is a posture of desperation. Like, man, I just desperately need something that I can't do anything about. And so I'm just going to kneel. Because you're not kneeling, you're just stopping. You're not doing anything yourself actively. You're just submitting yourself. And then the third thing is that kneeling really is, it displays a posture of confidence. He's confidence that God can do something that he can't do. And I don't know about you, but I pray most often when I'm walking around. That's probably because I don't really stay still. If you call me on the phone, uh, my wife will tell you I'm either pacing my house or in my backyard, just walking around. That's kind of my posture as someone's talking to me. And so I pray most often when I walk, specifically when I walk the neighborhood. And so I, you know, I'll walk different streets, and I'll pray for different homes, or if I see different individuals. Um, there's a prayer app called Prayer Atlas. So if you don't have that, download it. It'll, it'll actually map your prayer walks. It's really, really cool. And so I pray most often when I'm walking, but I sense that there's, a, there's some Sometimes a good time and place to just kneel in prayer. And I sense even as a church, even as a very young church and a forming church, that we may be entering one of those seasons where we just need to express a sense of gratitude to God for who He is and what He can do, a sense of desperation for what God can do that we can't do, and for our confidence in Jesus. And so I think for me, when I think of the posture of kneeling, to me it's like the most submissive posture you can have in prayer. Because if I'm walking somewhere and I'm prayer walking, most likely I'm, I'm walking somewhere to implement my will rather than God's will. And I feel like the sense of kneeling is just saying, God, I can't can't do this. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of myself. There's no way that I can do anything. I need you to act. And I feel like that's where we've probably found ourselves as the church, not just sojourn, but the church in the city of Portland. We really need an act of God in this place. And so then we see Paul returning to his original thought from verse one. And what he's going to do is he points to all that has been written up to this point. And so similar to Paul, I want to start out tonight, I want to provide us with a summary of everything that God has done for the Ephesians, and He's also done it for us, of those who would say that you are in Christ, which is actually about 30 different actions. So just bear with me and just listen to these things that we've covered in these first three chapters. It says, He has changed your identity. He has blessed you. He chose you before the foundations of the earth. 
He predestined you for adoption. He redeemed you through the blood of Christ. He forgave you. He has made you known. He has revealed the mystery of His will. He has given you an inheritance. He has secured your salvation. He has given you the Holy Spirit. He has given you wisdom. He has given you power. He has loved you. He has been merciful towards you. He has brought you from death to life. He has seated you with Him in heaven. He has saved you by grace. He has given you a purpose. He has brought you near even though you were far off. He has given you peace. He has created a new race. He has created unity between cultures. He has leveled cultures. He has preached peace. He has made you a citizen of His kingdom. He has revealed truth. He has given you a new community. He has given you an unshakable hope in Him. And He has done these things in your life, laboring for your joy since the foundations of the world. Now, if that list doesn't encourage you, then I don't know what will. Like when you hear those things, like God has done all of these things for you. This should cause you at least to sit there and smile. So I'm looking at all your faces, and I see some of you looking down, and some of you are like, I don't know what to do right now. Like this should at least cause you to smile that God has done all of these things for you. If not, it should cause you at least to stand up and shout. Now, my wife, is she grew up Pentecostal, so if you know anything about Pentecostal churches, they swing from the rafters and they run laps and do all those things. And, and so sometimes I think our Pentecostals brother and sisters need to rub off on us a little bit because they hear a list like this and they're like, amen, and we're shouting and praise God, and then some other things may take place that may be biblical and may not be. But either way, <laughs> they celebrate. And so I realized, I'm like, man, this should cause us to celebrate. And that's what Paul's saying is don't forget. I know it's hard. I know you're in this place and it's really challenging. It's really difficult. You're not even sure if you believe this anymore and how to live this out. But remember these things. And he gives them this long list. And he continues for us in verse 15. He says, From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And so we see there's a family and a father, and guess what? The family is the church. And my hope is that you're all starting to get a better understanding of this. This is why we call it our second core value. For those of you who are new at Sojourn, gospel family mission. And so family is our second core value because we are a family. Now, you may not believe this yet, but, but I believe this. And so if you don't consider me family, I'm going to force you to be my brother and my sister. Now, God's created this new family in us. And many, many people today think about it. They view the church as what? A place to go and get religious goods or, or some kind of services. And then when you're in a city like ours, not many people want that. You know, so if, if all we're offering is services and some kind of religious goods, we're never going to grow past anything because people don't want that in our city. People don't care about that in our city. But people have started treating the church as well like a business. And if we treat it like a business, then all of a sudden the people become the customers. And if you become a customer, you become a consumer. And then you start complaining about the church like you would Comcast. We all have enough to complain about Comcast, right? They raised your bill and did those things. And so we become, the, become just complainers and consumers and critics. But here's the thing. We are not in business now, some churches do operate as a business. That's one of the downsides of the American church. But we are a family. And this is a prayer from Paul. And he's saying, you should pray for your family. Biological family, for sure. We can all probably attest that, man, we've got family with issues. No, it's not us, right? It's our family has issues. Maybe it's your parents, your siblings, your cousins. They've got issues. So let's pray for them, sure. But he's also saying, pray for this family and, and for us locally if you consider sojourn your church home, like pray for this family, sojourn. The church isn't like family, it is family. And if that's not what you want, then this probably isn't the right church for you because I'm going to pound that continuously. And so I ask that you pray for your church family. Pray for more people to join the family. Not just this one, but the family of God ultimately, but then this one as well. Pray that more people join this family. 
Think of it this way. It's really easy to be critical of something or complain about something until you begin to pray for it and become an active participant in that family. I know that we don't do everything perfect here. I know that we're small. Even maybe tonight, you may have walked up and said, why, why is this on the ground when I'm walking in? Or why is this coffee kind of weak? Or why wasn't this chocolate cake and it was lemon cake in, in the middle? Or why are the chairs spread out the way that they're spread out? Or why is this guy still talking? Like, you know, there might be something you're complaining about. But when you become an active participant in the family, it's much harder to complain. Maybe you see a need and you can see your soldier at home and say, you know what? I want to help meet that need. Awesome. Or at least pray for it. Say, God, I can't meet that, but I know that you can and you can do these things. And so Paul's saying, pray for your family. And Paul prays that we would be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in our inner being. And so the Holy Spirit applies to believers the personal power and presence of God, including one's inner being. And so we see Paul's first request for his readers, for his audience, is that they be strengthened. And the strength that God offers is, is qualified with three phrases. He said, with power, through the Spirit, in your inner being. And so this is really just a reminder that the Spirit of God is the agent who carries out this strengthening. This isn't something that we can, we can create up ourselves. This isn't something we can draw up on a whiteboard. He's praying that the Spirit of God would, would dwell up with inside of us, and that would be an overflow that would come out of us. Paul goes on in seven, verse 17. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So if you are in Christ, in other words, if you call yourself a Christian or a Christ follower, then Christ already dwells within you. So that's not what he's saying, but Paul is praying that there will be an indwelling power that will be present within you. And you've probably heard the idea of you can quench the Spirit. So Paul is praying that you don't quench the Spirit, but there's this indwelling power of Christ within you that overflows. And the natural overflow is a living faith full of love. And so we see that as the fruit of Christ's work within a Christian, that we would be known by our love for loving God and for loving others. And so we see that Paul's second request is for the Ephesian believers to understand and experience the love of Christ, grasping Christ's immense love toward them. So he points out in verse 18 that they may have strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love. And then verse 19, so that you will know the love of Christ. R. Kent Hughes, you guys have heard me quote him before. It's because he's one of the commentaries that I'm using to get all of this knowledge as I study the book of Ephesians. He points to these four magnitudes, to the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And he says these are poetic expressions for the infinite of God's love. And he sees a few dimensions here that are suggested from this. First thing he says, a love that is wide enough to embrace the world. Think about John 3.16. That's probably one of the most quoted known verses. But it tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The second thing he says is a love that is long enough to last forever. In 1 Corinthians 13.8 it tells us, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But love never ends. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, It is so long, he's talking about the love of God, that your old age cannot wear it out. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your successive temptations shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. Referring to God's love. Third thing he points out is a love that is high enough to take sinners to heaven. 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, he shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then the fourth thing is a love that is deep enough to take Christ to the very depths to reach the lowest sinner. Philippians 2.8 tells us, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a magnificent expression of love that the reality is I don't think any of us fully can grasp the the breadth, the depth, the width, the height of God's love for us. These four magnitudes describes an infinite and comprehensible love in the words of A.W. Tozer, who says it this way, Because God is self-existent, His love had no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit. Because he is holy, it is the quintessence of spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. There's so much to grasp to the depth of God's love for you, for me, for our city, for our world. Paul's third request is for the Ephesian believers to be filled with the fullness of God. To what surpasses knowledge is the sublime privilege of a Christian. So think about the ultimate purpose is to be filled with God's fullness. Right? So if you had to narrow it all down, say, what's, what's the purpose of those who are in Christ, who are here tonight and part of sojourn? That we would be filled with God's fullness. So with the things that we do, that's, that's really the end goal that we point towards. It's not just so that we can have a dinner club and that you can hear a talk and that you have some coffee and cake, but that we would be filled with God's fullness. And take note of all the phrases in verses 16 through 19 about power and love. So we'd be strengthened with power, that we would be rooted and firmly established in love, that we would be able to comprehend God's love, to know the Messiah's love, and to be filled with all the fullness of God. Remember, this is a prayer that Paul is praying for them. So he's praying all of these things over them in hopes that they would embrace this. And it's also important for us to note that he's really referring back to all those previous chapters. Everything he's written up to this point, all three chapters. And he's saying, look at Christ's supreme power. It's been put on display for us. And God's great love towards sinners. He's saying, be reminded of these things. D.A. Carson points out that the word choice of Paul's, and then he illustrates the difference between a short-lived resident and a long-term resident. And what he's meaning by that is that we're not, it's not just a temporary thing. We're not just like, Christ, come and dwell in us, and then, cool, I'm going to go back to being who I was. Like, no, Christ, like, come and live in me. Like, don't just sign a, a year lease, sign the permanent contract, put the down payment, and, you know, Christ has paid for it all. Come, come dwell inside of me. And so Carson says this, when Christ takes up residence in a believer, it's like a couple who purchases a home that needs a lot of work. But over time, they clean it up, they repair it and eventually they say this house has been shaped to our needs and tastes and I really feel comfortable he says when Christ by his spirit takes up residence within us he finds a moral equivalent to trash black and silver wallpaper and a leaking roof he sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him a home for which he is comfortable when a person takes up a long-term residence somewhere their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling when Christ first moves into our lives he finds us in bad repair it takes a great deal of power to change us and that is why Paul prays for power because he is transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. And so my question for you, Sojourn, is have you allowed Christ to come into your heart and to make his spirit and indwelling within you? Have you allowed him to renovate you from the inside out? Some of us functionally treat Christ and Christianity like a painter that's in town for the weekend. Hey, I know there's something going on here. I know it doesn't look great. Can you come and just kind of slap some paint on the house um, to make it smell fresh and to look fresh? We've all moved into these places, right? We moved into the apartment. Man, this place looks great. And then you realize the paint is, is starting to peel within a couple of days. And then you realize, man, there's some cracks on the wall. There's holes. Right? Some of us treat Christ that way. 
We're allowing him to just kind of clean us up a little bit. But we need him to come in and dwell on us, to make a permanent residence there and to clean us up from within. And I'm not saying this is on you. This, this, what's on you is to act and respond to Christ accordingly. Because you can't do this. It's always, you're always, the cracks are always going to come out. The holes are always going to be there. You're always going to need this repair. But Christ within you can change you and make this difference. From here he continues in verse 20. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul concludes his prayer and doxology with three parts. The first part is a description of who he's addressing. He's saying, Him who is able according to his power who is at work within us. So referring to God there. Because God's the only one who can change us in this way. And then we see the second thing is a declaration of praise. Where he says, God alone is the one who's ascribed glory. God alone deserves our praise and our glory. You know, we talk about the things that we're going to do at Sojourn and our partnerships and what we hope that God does in and through us. But don't ever let us receive the glory. Don't ever let one individual, me, receive that glory. All that glory goes to God and God alone. And then the third thing is a temporal expression of how long such praise should be given. He's saying this, this expression of praise is, is it's a temporary expression of what is to come for eternity. So in a sense, we're seeing a reflection, kind of here and now, these things are happening, but it's, it's reflecting what's going to come for eternity. That's going to last forever. And then Paul says that God is able, in verse 20. And so as I'm studying, I read this verse, that God is able. What, what is God able to do? And notice the descriptions. He says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think or even imagine. I believe that most of us forget that. I don't think we really bask in that reality that God can do far more than we ask or think. We've talked about this, I don't know, it was, it was a number of weeks ago. I think a lot of times our prayers are very just superficial. Like, God, let there be no traffic on the way home. Let there be a parking spot in the parking lot that my car can actually fit in. Um, let me feel good when I wake up tomorrow. Like, nothing wrong with praying for those things, but when you look at all these lists of attributes of God, like, man, we should be praying much bigger prayers. When we're praying to the God who can do far more abundantly than we ask or think. And all we can think of is like, give me a parking spot. Or, you know, let me have a good day today. Let it not rain tomorrow, right? Can you do these things? And think about God can do more in a split second than we can do in our entire lifetime. Just like that, God can make it happen. We were, we've been told, on average, that to start a church from scratch in the city of Portland is going to take a minimum of five to seven years, could be as long as ten years, to see Sojourn plant it, root it, and establish in this city. This is a reality that I face all the time. I'm pretty transparent here, so I, I think about this all the time. Every day I'm like, okay, we're this much closer to that, to that point. And I, I get that, and I know it's going to take a long time. But according to this verse, God can make it happen like that. Just a snap of a finger. Now, I pray that God would. I'm like, God, come on now. Let's just show everyone and prove that you can do this. But sometimes God wants you to endure through the pain and, and the, um, the trials. But God can do it, and I believe that he can do it. And so do you believe that God is this big, that he's able to actually do far more than you can think or imagine? Think about the problems that are going on in your life right now. And we all have them. You know, they could be small. They may be like, I need a better parking spot at school or something like that. But big problems, small problems, think about those things. Do you believe that God can do far more than you can think or ask or even imagine? Do you believe that God alone is sovereign over your life and the life of our church? That doesn't mean it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't mean that we, we, we live a reckless lifestyle or just a flippant lifestyle. But think about it. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. If you actually believe that, 
I know it comes in that time of year. That's kind of present in people's minds. When I meet with people, I have lunch and coffee, and they say, you know, what, how did it make sense to you? When did it become real? I'm like, I believe that Jesus died, and he actually came back to life. I know that makes me crazy. So at that point, you might as well just embrace all of it, because that makes you weird if you actually believe that. And I believe you actually need to believe that in order to call yourself a Christ follower, to be in Christ, and to be a Christian. So there's some things that we can negotiate on. That is not one of them. And so he actually raised Jesus from the dead. He placed him as head over the church. Remember, we're the body. He's the head. That's why I don't want to know why people want to sever the body from the head. They go hand in hand. And he put all things under his feet. And I know that we've been called to a context that is extremely difficult. Some would say nearly impossible to live a life as a faithful missionary here in this city. But I believe that we need to grasp a vision of the God that we actually serve. Okay, so if I'm not preaching to anyone else right now, I'm preaching to myself. So just bear with me. Let God and me have this conversation. <laughs> do we actually believe what Paul is telling us here? Do we have faith in the greatness of God that he can do these things? For things for you individually, once again, think of those things. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's other ministry areas. And are, are, do your prayers require that God actually respond? Or is this something you can figure out? I mean, I can drive in those circles. I'll find a better parking spot. I can figure out a lot of this stuff on my own. You know, I know I'm not the most talented guy, but I, I know how to do a few things. I can, you know, I can do quite a few things. But do my prayers actually require that God show up? That God actually respond to where, I, to where I like fall on my knees and just say, I had nothing to do with that. That was totally a God thing. And so Paul is using this set of verses to realign our hearts so our worship and glory isn't given to the wrong things. What you say, well, what is the wrong things? I would say check your bank account. Pull it up online and say, this is what I'm spending my money on. Doesn't mean those things are wrong. I purchased something at Apple this week that I've been waiting to get for months now. So it doesn't mean those purchases are wrong, okay? If you see me wearing AirPods, don't make fun of the Q-tip sticking in my ear, how much I spent on them. But if you see that there's this pattern, man, that's all you're spending your money on, then, man, there might be something going on there. But that will tell you where you're spending, you know, where your heart is. That will tell you where your, where your treasure is, the things that you love. But we should be pointing those things to the God of the universe because He alone is worthy, He's preparing us for this second half of this letter where he's going to get very practical. We're going to move into the areas about marriage and sexuality, invite all your people in Portland, all these things. He's going to be very practical in the second half of this book. So Paul's setting us up. So be reminded of these things before I move you into the very practical side of life. And Paul is calling them here to give glory to God, but not solely as an individual Christ follower. He's calling them collectively as a group of Christ followers known as the church to give glory to God. This is the whole purpose of the church. This is the whole purpose of sojourn. This is the whole reason that, that my family felt this call to move across the country. And the whole reason that we're, we're living here in the city of Portland. This is why we're hoping to raise up a family of servant missionaries known as sojourn. And this is why we want to call you to a high level of commitment and accountability. This is why you, know, you hear the church say, we want people to be generous with their time, their talent, and their treasure. And you might think, well, why do you want me to be generous with my time, talent, and treasure? Why would you want that? Because we believe that the mission we've been called to is that important. We believe that God has collectively given His church this mission and said, this is how you are to live this out. This isn't just my calling. It's also your calling. You know, a lot of times people say, well, you're the pastor, or you're the church planner. And like, okay, cool, let's, let's scratch the titles. We'll throw those out and just like, who's Matt? He's this guy that drinks coffee and talks about Jesus. Cool, we'll leave it at that. I don't have to have a title. But this call is given to every single person who's in Christ. And that's what Paul is reminding them here. Sojourn's not my thing. I've had people say, like, sojourn's your thing. Like, no, it's not. It's God's thing. We can change the name if we need to. All right, this is God's church. We're not just another nonprofit. You know, people say, well, you guys are just another nonprofit. Like, no, if that were the case, why would I move to the city of Portland? There's so many nonprofits here. Why do we, we don't need another nonprofit. There's a difference with the church. We exist to manifest the glory of God. 
Most nonprofits do not. Now, we partner with nonprofits. You know, we, we give diapers and we volunteer at school activities and these things, but there's, there's a difference in that. We exist solely for the glory of God. This is why we ask you to be devoted to a church. If not here, then somewhere. That's, that's really hard in the city of Portland. As I've studied the early church, I keep coming back to this word for 2019. My word is devoted. And I want to see people who are devoted to Jesus and devoted to his church. Not necessarily my church, not necessarily Sojourn Church, but the church, wherever God calls you to do that. Because this is what God is calling us to, and that's what Paul is reminding them here. And Paul calls them to think throughout, he says, throughout all generations. In other words, what will be the story, the impact, and the legacy that we will leave on the city of Portland? So if we kind of bring it home, what, what, what will that be for us? Think of it this way. If we were to stop existing tomorrow, would our community know or care? You know, I know we're young, so you might say, like, probably wouldn't even notice. You know, a lot of people don't even know we meet in this building. But I do think there's enough relationships and partnerships that people would be like, man, that's what happened to those people. Like, they were, they were starting to do some stuff. And one thing is for certain, we're, we will leave a legacy. If we shut down tonight and we say, this is it, sojourn's over, we will still leave a legacy. And so I prayerfully want us to consider, what type of legacy are we going to leave? My hope is that we can accomplish our vision of being a group of people committed to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. I want us to be known as a church that, that serves the least and last in our city. I want us to be known as that church that our name always pops up. Not so it's always our name, but it's known that, man, whenever there's a need in our community, Sojourn's the first one to say, like, hey, we can, we can do that. Hey, we'll help there. And believe it or not, I know, we're, I know that we're small, but we actually have that reputation with a few groups already. Like, at the, the PTA president of Vernon, so we keep calling you because you keep showing up. The, the Concordia Neighbor Association, same thing. We keep asking you to do things because you keep coming, following through and doing those things. And that's the reputation I want us to be known for. Because I want us to know care and invest in the community God has put us in. I want us to be known as a church that's making a difference. Albeit an uncomfortable, different, un uncomfortable in our city. It is going to be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to do these things. It's way more comfortable just to live entirely for yourself. And I'm not only talking to you, I'm talking to myself here. Like, it'd be a lot easier for me just to buy every latest Apple product. And I want to, believe me, I want to. I've got an iPad, and this is second generation. This thing is basically trash. I could probably get $20 for it. Like, I want to get the new one. I'm like, nah, this one works, and you only use it on Sunday nights for your manuscript. Why do you need another one? I didn't have AirPods, so I had to get truly wireless earbuds. So it is uncomfortable. There's things that I want to do, but no, we're called to live for a higher and greater purpose. And we will, by God's grace, make an impact here for the life of Sojourn. And I'm prayerful that you guys would, would join us in that. And so as we wrap up, I actually want us to respond two ways this evening. The first way is we're going to move into a time of celebration and reflection through the taking of, of communion. This is a reminder for us each week that as we break off the bread that Christ's body was broken for us and as we dip it into the wine that Jesus' blood was shed for us. This is a family meal. I mean, if you've believed or trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are invited to participate in this with us. If there's something you need to get right in your heart, I would encourage you to get that right prior to taking the meal. If there's someone in this room that they think, man, I need to talk to them because I've, I've got something against them, take the time to do that. We have, we've got plenty of time here. If there's someone outside of this room, maybe it's a family member or a friend or something's going on or they don't even live in the city, and you just feel, man, I don't want to take this until I get that right with them. Like, I understand that. We'll respect that. Take that time. Or if you just need to talk with someone or you need to receive prayer, I'll be in the back. If you're not comfortable talking with me or sharing with me, we've got connect cards back there. Just indicate prayer. If you don't want to share your name, just say, here's what's going on. Please pray for this. If you want someone to actually meet with you over coffee this week, indicate that. Let us know. 
And then second, at the end of our time with communion, I want us to move into a time of prayer as a church family. So not just kind of a closing prayer, but actually a time of prayer, because what we've just looked at tonight is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. And so I want us to take time to, to, uh, as a church to pray for really our community. Um, all the time, I think about Easter is in three weeks. And even in a city like ours, and we experienced this last year, there's people who won't come any other time of year, and the church is not a gathering. I know we can talk about that. We've talked about that at length. But who may show up to something like this. And we want to be ready to, to meet those people where they're at. And if, if they're not willing to come to this, maybe they're willing to, to uh, be at the neighborhood ACON that we're helping participate in, and we can build a new friendship relationship. But either way, we want to be intentionally praying for the people in our city and the people in our community. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we will respond through the taking of communion. And then I'll come up at the end and lead us in our time of prayer. And I believe after that we'll have one uh, final song before we dismiss for the evening. Pray with me. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon.